So my husband, Rob, is a really smart guy, and I knew that back in 2012 when we got married, but we uh, recently discovered the Jeopardy app on our Amazon Echo, that little personal assistant electronic thingy. So I always knew he was smart, but when we started playing Jeopardy together, I discovered just what a prodigy of, of general knowledge that he was. I knew that he knew math and science. He's a chemistry major from an engineering school, and I, I knew that, but he would get art questions, history questions, obscure authors, just all sorts of stuff, and so now, I just love playing Jeopardy with him. Partially because I know he likes to impress me and that's just really sweet, but also partially because when you've been, when you've been married for five years, no, don't get me wrong, you're, you're always like learning and growing, but, but, but you don't usually discover like new and, and interesting, funny, exciting things about your spouse anymore. Like you never, you never learn five years in that your spouse plays the bagpipes, right? You never learn that they have a tattoo of Warren Beatty's face on their back. That's usually something that you cover in the dating relationship, I hope. So learning that I'd married the, the grown-up version of Doogie Howser was like really exciting. And so now we play the Jeopardy app every day. So I know he's smart. And yet, and yet there are, there are these times where something, some event calls into question my conclusions about my husband. Uh, for example, one day I'd come back from work and I go out back and, and I walk outside and I see that he is hanging from our tree in the backyard. And he's loosely tethered by like some climbing rope that he had found somewhere. He's perched uh, on his tiptoes on this very wobbly ladder. And it's not like a man's ladder. It's like a glorified step stool. It's like four or five rungs. It's the kind of ladder that you would use to maybe dust a ceiling fan if you were a hobbit, you know? So he's, he's perched here just teetering on one foot while swinging a live chainsaw at the few branches that his hobbit ladder will help him reach. And, and I'm thinking, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Proverbs 14, 12. <laughs> Sometimes we need a little help understanding what's wise. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are entire books devoted to wisdom, and as we can, can continue in our study of the book of James, this passage we're looking at today, it doesn't define wisdom, but it gives a very clear picture of what it looks like and what it does not look like. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to James chapter three. It's also in your bulletins. You can just listen as I read. Verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that come from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. This is God's word. So we're coming to the close of chapter three here, and if you remember from last week, James has just talked about the importance of being able to control one's tongue and how a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. Said, said more simply, uh, an evil heart will produce evil words. Out of it, a good heart will produce good words. If you're a fig tree, you make figs. If you are a, a, a fresh spring, you will produce fresh water. So James begins this paragraph with the question, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life and deeds done in the humility that come from wisdom. It's almost as if James is saying, okay, so, so you think you're wise? Show me your figs. Show me your fresh water. If, if you're a fig tree or a fresh spring, that's what you should produce. If you claim to be wise, then show me your humility. Show me your good life because that's what 
being wise will produce. He doesn't give us a definition of wisdom, but rather a description of what it looks like. And this is brilliant because the audience that James is speaking to here are Christians who have been inundated with Greek philosophy, which is, has a very different idea of what it means to be wise. A common definition of wisdom is knowledge applied, but, but what knowledge and to what end we apply it will differ greatly from person to person based on their motivations, based on their values. So for his audience, James sets up this entire section with the statement, the wisdom from heaven will be shown in a good life and the deeds done in humility. He's saying whatever else wisdom is, it will look like a good life and by deeds done in humility. So the passage we're looking at can be broken down roughly into three sections. We have this first, this rhetorical question and its setup statement about the characteristics a wise person will display, a good life and humility. The second section tells us what wisdom doesn't look like, and the third section tells us what it does look like. So, so we'll start there in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by the deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. That phrase there, the good life, there, there are a couple of words in the Greek that are used uh, to, to say good in English. The first is agathos, and, and this is um, something that, that is intrinsically good. It's something that's good in and of itself. It would be, more, it would be better applied to, to God or Jesus. But the word that James uses here is kalos, which means uh, it has a softer meaning, something like lovely. The loveliness of goodness, the attractiveness of it in God's people, a beauty that makes people curious about the God that we live this way for. So James isn't saying, you know, use your, uh, show your wisdom by your intrinsically good life. Again, we will fall short of that in many ways at many times. We don't have to pretend to be perfectly good. He's saying, he's saying show your wisdom by your lovely life, by your winsomeness, by living in a way that's lovely to behold, being imperfect people who are choosing to care for one another despite all of our flaws. Let them show their wisdom by their good life and also by the deeds done in humility. James is writing to Hellenistic Jews. These are, these are Jews who were scattered among the nations. They're living uh, among the Gentiles. They speak the Greek language. They're using the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and, as opposed to the Hebraic Jews who would have stayed near Judea, near Jerusalem, and uh, would be speaking Hebrew. So the Jews that James is addressing here would have been far more saturated by the influence of Greek culture and philosophy. And for the Greeks... Humility, meekness, was certainly not a prized characteristic. In fact, the philosopher Epictetus names it first in a list of moral faults. They would consider it a character flaw. It is, it, it's thought of as servile and groveling. It's not, uh, it's not appropriate for someone who is strong and confident and wise. So this would have been a challenging concept, and I think that's maybe why James addresses it directly. The wisdom in, uh, of Greek philosophy was incredibly different than the wisdom that James is describing here. Remember, Jesus himself claimed to be meek. He called the meek blessed. In our faith, meekness, humility, isn't, isn't groveling, it's not being servile, it's, it's, it's a right understanding of reality. It's a right understanding of our position as sinful creatures under a perfect and glorious God. It's an acknowledgement that none of us are good enough to be good enough for God. And furthermore, Christian humility will by nature translate into humility toward others as well. Ephesians 4.2, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Colossians 3.12, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 
Titus 3.2, slander no one, be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone. So in this section, James is preparing his audience for a contrast between true wisdom and false wisdom. James recognizes that, there's, that there are things, there's more than one thing that looks like wisdom to men, and he's trying to help us tell the difference. Let them show it by their good life, by the deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Humility comes from wisdom, whatever else wisdom may be. It will be characterized by humility as one of its primary and defining identities. The Greeks weren't the only ones with a, with a competing idea of what wisdom looked like. I think our own culture, sometimes even our churches, can get this very, very wrong. Wisdom does not look like knowing best. Wisdom doesn't even look like knowing most. A lot of scholars have noted that the, the qualities produced by wisdom in the book of James are very similar to the qualities produced by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are, these are qualities that make us attractive, that make us winsome, that make our lives lovely. In the world that God has placed us to serve as his ambassadors, if, if we believe that Jesus is who he said he was, then our goal, our mission, our calling is, is to, to get home and take as many people as we can with us. And we do that by living lives that are so full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, that the rest of the world look at us and become curious about God. They want to know the God we live that way for. That's what James means here by kalos, the good life, the lovely life. We know a lot. We have access to endless, boundless information at our fingertips all the time. I had three commentaries open on my desk while I studied this passage. I could have had more. We have no shortage of knowledge, but, but what knowledge does in us and through us is what makes it wisdom or not. So if your wisdom doesn't make you humble, but makes you proud, it's not the wisdom of heaven. If your wisdom doesn't reveal to you your flaws, it's not the wisdom of heaven. If our wisdom doesn't serve to make us more gentle in how we treat other people and even rebuke them, then it's not the wisdom of heaven. In other words, wisdom makes us more aware of our own sin and shortcomings, not more aware of the sins and shortcomings of others. So let's look at that second section, what wisdom is not, starting, starting in verse 14. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder in every evil practice. The two words there rendered uh, bitter envy are sometimes translated as jealousy. And the, and the type of jealousy that James has in mind here is, is the jealousy that occurs between two people who are both trying to have their position heard. They want to be seen as wise, understanding, smart. They, they want to be admired. And who doesn't want to be admired? But so this person begins to see the success of someone else as actually a threat to their own success. Rob and I have a strict rule that when we play competitive board games or cards that we have to play on the same team. Uh, we took a strengths finders test when we were dating and the only strength that we shared in common was competition which didn't seem like a big deal when it was just a word on, on an inventory test uh, of your personality, but on our honeymoon, when there was a life-size chessboard on the pool deck of our hotel, it became a very big deal indeed. 
why is your husband sleeping on the, on, the, on the couch? You guys just got married, didn't you? He beat me at chess. I'll just give you one or two examples. So uh, when we first started dating, uh, on our second or third date, I thought that I would, I, I decided that I was going to try to impress Rob with my geography knowledge. I, I used to be a history teacher, and um, so I knew he liked to travel, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll do one of those online history, or online geography quizzes, and I'll impress him with my knowledge. What I didn't take into account is the fact that Rob worked for Crew, and he was on the travel team, and he had visited like 50 countries in the last six or eight years, and so... Uh, the, I'm just used to like naming countries on a map, but the quiz that he pulled up started to ask oddly specific questions. Use the mouse, mouse to click on the Khyber Pass. Well, the Khyber Pass, if you don't know, is a mountain pass that connects Pakistan to Afghanistan. And even if I knew that, which of course I didn't, because who knows that, it didn't matter because the, the, the quiz scored you based on how close to the actual landmark you clicked. So he's a gentleman, he let me go first, thanks. I scored 50,000 points, which sounds like a lot, until Rob took the quiz and he scored just over half a million points. He was consistently within 10 or 20 miles of the landmark. It was absolutely humiliating. I've actually never been able to speak of it until today. So I began studying geography, motivated entirely by shame and revenge. <laughs> Another example, we went up to my family's cottage in Geneva on Lake Ohio a few years ago. Uh, it's a little podunk town in Ohio with some arcades and some old food joints. And I'd spent every summer up there from birth uh, until the end of high school. And so uh, I'd learned to play all the games. And my favorite game was, was Street Fighter, the original. And, um, I, and, and I'd played it pretty much from elementary school in, well into my teen years. So I just finished beating my brother at the game. And then Rob comes over, and he puts in a quarter to challenge me. And he's a, a college graduate from an engineering school who had spent many, many a cold Michigan winter playing video games, so he was understandably surprised when I kicked him all over China with Chun-Li in her very impractical maxi skirt, even when he used Blanca to electrocute me. So, so he told me, when, when we got home, he was like, hey, I got you a surprise. I'm like, oh, thank you. And I open it up, and it's, it's an original Nintendo console <laughs> with one game, Street Fighter. And of course, he said it was because I really enjoyed to play, but I believe that it's because he wanted to practice until he could beat me. So we don't play games against each other anymore. We, we play in the same team. It's better for our marriage. It's more fun. We almost ruined our honeymoon because uh, for whatever reason, we decided that winning at chess somehow equated to intellectual superiority. Now, we've been married long enough now that I've made my peace with the fact that Rob is smarter than me in every way, which is good, and, and I've even begun to see it as a blessing because he talks me down from some really bad ideas. Let's buy Ember a drum set. Bad idea. Let's get white couches. Never a good idea, unless you hate dogs and children and wine and coffee. But that first experience of our honeymoon taught us both a really important lesson. In our marriage, we either win together or we lose together. I might fight to win an argument. I may actually win that argument. But if I do so at the expense of my husband's feelings, of, uh, of the trust in the relationship between us, then my marriage is lost. We win together or we lose together. It is a really toxic thing to hope for the failure of someone that you love. The jealousy that James is talking about here is, is so toxic, not just in marriage, but, but in every avenue of life, because this kind of self-interest leads by necessity to divisions, and, and, and not just divisions between one person and another, but divisions among whole groups of people. We see this at work. You're, you work really hard with your coworker on a project, and then when they present it to the board, 
they don't give you any of the credit. They take it all for themselves and they, they begin to build a case to get a promotion that you know you deserve. We see it in our schools. You, you spread rumors about another student because the guy you're trying to impress has taken an interest in her instead. We see it in our families. Your, your family is divided into two camps, the, the ones who believe that your sister-in-law should get a divorce and the ones who believe that her husband is really at fault and they're constantly building a case for themselves by talking and talking and talking. We see it in our churches. Well, I don't like where we're going with this issue. So I'm gonna make my case. I'm gonna leave the church. I'm gonna take as many people as I can with me. The false wisdom that James is talking about is characterized by these things, by, by jealousy and ambition. It divides people. It's, it's these divisions, especially within the body of Christ, that damage our ability to be a light to the world, that damage our mission, that keep us from being the winsome and lovely people that make others curious about God. When Paul opposes Peter in Galatians, he didn't try to divide the church over it. He is content to, to do the hard labor of working out their differences in a way that aims to unite and not to divide in the end. He doesn't make it about himself being right. He makes it about the church being whole. Now, I'm not saying you should never disagree, that you will disagree, you should disagree. There are issues over which if you do not disagree, you are not being faithful to your calling. But within the body of Christ, every disagreement should aim to unite us for us all to gain a better understanding of Christ's truth and then grow together closer as his body. To unite, not to divide, not to throw out the people who we disagree with simply because we don't want to live in any uncomfortable tension. That's not wisdom, that's cowardice. Wisdom, James tells us, looks like humility. It looks like winsomeness. And we know it when we see it, don't we? We've all met that person who makes you feel perfectly at ease. And maybe they can't quite quote chapter and verse, but they love Jesus. And they never say an unkind word about anyone. They are wiser by far. There are, I dare say, non-believers who demonstrate more heavenly wisdom than the Christian who gossips or the preacher that's proud. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you are attracted to those qualities, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, you may find that someone is after you. This passage is without a doubt meant for us church people and it's specifically meant for church people who think that we know a thing or two. We can memorize books of the Bible, we can parse Greek verbs and know the contexts of obscure passages, but if that knowledge, if, if if knowing all of this does not increase our humility, both toward God and toward others, if it does not make us think of, of others above ourselves, it's not wisdom, it's just information. And if the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword, then using his word in the absence of his wisdom may serve to wound people instead of heal them. Verse 15, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Earthly, that's pretty simple. It, it just means wisdom that, that only takes into account the earthly implications and not the, the spiritual ones is not true wisdom. Demonic, that sounds a little alarming, but he's not saying if you're demonstrating false wisdom, you're possessed. He's saying that if you uh, display false wisdom, it, it has its roots in the lies that the devil would have us believe in his utter hatred of God. 
It's reminiscent of that very first lie that humanity believed that God was holding out on us. And that was a lie that was made even more powerful by our good desire to gain wisdom, but a desire that became bent when our means of gaining that wisdom fell outside the boundaries of God's design. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate, Genesis 3, 6. So that second word there, unspiritual, I want to take a minute with because I really love James's choice here. Unspiritual in the Greek, psychikos, it's an adjective derived from the Greek word for soul. It's, it's used in the Apocrypha to describe a, a very sincere emotion, something that we, we um, feel in our soul or as we would say, from the heart. And it seems like that would be a good adjective, except that in every one of its five occurrences in the New Testament, it's used in the pejorative. It's used to describe that part of us where we allow our thoughts and our feelings to rule all of the choices that we make. Wisdom that is unspiritual, James tells us through this passage, is wisdom that follows one's heart. I think the biggest competitor for heavenly wisdom that we have is psychikos wisdom, the wisdom of following our hearts. My daughter Ember got a bunch of princess gear for her third birthday recently. My mom sent her a pair of princess shoes, and so my dad, not to be outdone, sent her a three-pack of princess shoes, a four-pack of wands, and a six-pack of crowns. So she wears crowns everywhere. She wears them outside, inside, to school, home. She wants, it's the desire of her heart to be a princess at all times, including when she's on the potty. But then when she's done, and it's time to wipe, she looks down and she starts to cry because she sees a princess wand in one hand and she sees a teddy bear in the other and instead of it occurring to her to set one of them down, she then just concludes that it's simply impossible to wipe her own bottom. And so then she's stuck indefinitely in her own filth uh, because she can't set anything down. And so she cries. I'd make me cry too, but she's just following her heart. She also wants to wear her crown to bed while sleeping. That has its own challenges because it's pointy and pokes her in the head while she sleeps. And so she tried a few different strategies. She turned it around like a backwards ball cap. That didn't work. She wore it down over her eyes like Geordie LaForge. That didn't work. She couldn't bear to put the crown down. And so she would wake herself up all night and cry because she doesn't know what's stabbing her in the head in the dark. That would make me cry too. She's just following her heart. And so watching her struggle through these experiences had led me to one inevitable conclusion. Following your heart is stupid. <laughs> it's, it, it, I, I've followed my heart before. And it's led me into empty relationships, into moral compromises, into selfishness that promises to fulfill me, but in the end only makes me more desperate. You can follow your heart right into the bed of someone who's not your husband. You can follow your heart into a drug addiction. You can follow your heart into financial ruin. Why, when did we begin to believe this was wisdom? It's not wise. We live in a world that calls it wisdom, that says that whatever's true for you is the truth that you should live by. How's that working out for you? Do you ever feel like you're holding on to something that's stabbing you in the dark and keeping you up at night? Do you ever look down and wonder if the things that you're grasping are keeping you stuck in your own filth? Following my heart never worked out for me. 
following our hearts is a cheap wisdom if it's wisdom at all. And just like Eve in the garden, we are deceived when we are tempted by a wisdom that would benefit only us. If it only benefits you, it is not wisdom. And here's the real kicker. It probably doesn't actually benefit you. Not really. We may choose earthly, unspiritual wisdom because we want to get ahead and we think it's going to help, but, but, but on a long enough timeline, it does just the opposite because we can't compartmentalize bad character. No matter how much we want to, no matter how much we think we can, we will become more and more like the choices that we make over time. It will leak into all the places where we still want to be pure and good and true. It will leak if you lie to your boss. It will become easier to lie to your friends. If you, if you cheat on your taxes, it will become easier to cheat on your wife. It leaks. This is what the wisdom of heaven does not look like. That last section, what wisdom does look like, beginning in verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. James tells us that wisdom is first of all pure, and then his list goes on to describe the dimensions that characterize that purity. Peace-loving is the first characteristic, and it has a special prominence, not only because it's first here, but, but also because uh, he returns to it in the, in the blessing that he makes over peacemakers in verse 18. It's considerate, so it thinks of, of the interests of others. It's submissive. The little, literal translation of this word here is, is easily persuaded. And I like this because it doesn't mean being weak or gullible. This is not um, making yourself subject to, to violence or abuse. That's not what James is talking about. The submission that James is talking about here is, is a willing act of relinquishing one's own rights or desires. It's a, a willingness to, de to defer to others when to do so would bring peace. Deference that brings unity and peace between people when the conflict doesn't involve a, a, a moral or theological principle that's foundational to our faith. So a better way to say it might not be easily persuaded, but, but readily persuaded. This isn't weakness, this is strength. This is someone who, who, who has such a degree of internal control an ability to, to, to govern their own will instead of following their heart. Someone who has the ability to make their appetites subject to their good choices. Jesus was submissive in this way, and you could never call it weakness. In the Garden of Gethsemane, awaiting his crucifixion, his heart desired that this cup would pass him by if it could. And if Jesus followed his heart, all of us would have to pay the price that is demanded of our sin. None of us could have any hope we would all be eternally separated from our creator. Jesus was readily persuaded. Thanks be to God. To conclude this section, James returns here in verse 18 to the idea of peace, that peacemakers will sow, who sow in peace will harvest righteousness, that peace will characterize a body of believers who are full of wisdom because in their humility, they, they are willing to defer to one another that which is truly unimportant. So if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, as Proverbs tells us, then I would submit to you that, that perhaps humility is the center of wisdom. And then the peace 
that characterizes very, very different people who have come together in humility because of their, who have come together in unity because of their humility. Maybe that is the completion of wisdom. So there's not a really practical kind of hands-on application for this passage, but I think one of the ways that we can honor the text in practice, in practice is to work backwards. Where in my life and in my relationships is there a lack of peace? I would say that it is very possible that I would find a lack of humility there as well. But the good news is that as James has already told us at the very beginning of this book, we don't have to be afraid of approaching God for the things that we lack. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you, James 1.5. He doesn't want to humiliate you for all the things that you should know but don't. He wants to add to your knowledge humility so that in his grace it may then be transformed into wisdom. So as we pray for his wisdom, as we examine ourselves, as we let his word examine us, let us too be readily persuaded. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that while we often lack the wisdom that you offer us so freely, you still always give it to us willingly and eagerly without condemning us, without finding fault in us. We confess that the amount of information we know is not proportionate to the wisdom that we should have as a result. And we beg for you to add to our knowledge your humility that we might use what we know not to be the best, but rather to be a better representation of you in a world that desperately needs your grace. We pray that you would grant us your humility so that we would see rightly our position as sinful creatures dearly loved by a holy father and people who do not stand above nor below, but equal with all others at the foot of your cross. And we pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.